know, I think that you only really truly learn to love life when you realise that, you know, that our life is temporary. You know, I'm much more happy with life now that I know that I've got a brain tumour. And as horrible as that sounds, but you've got to face up to the reality that one out of one of us is going to die. You know, we've got to come to terms with it and we've got to make the most of our, most of our life. And I think that, that the, the source of, of, of happiness and contentment is understanding that, that life is this temporary, beautiful thing that we have. You know, I'm looking forward to getting old, to be honest. I want, I want the grey hairs and I want the arthritis and all that sort of stuff because, you know, I've, my life is very much threatened. Um, you know, if I make 50, then I'm, then, I'm, then I'm beating the odds, to be honest. That is Stuart Farramond, author of The Science of Living, 219 Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routine. He is a fascinating man. He has a fascinating personal story. And this book of his, it's absolutely awesome. This is more of an espresso how to wow, kicking off February. But my goodness me, it's absolute gold. Don't go anywhere. Dr. Farramond is on the way. You're about to be stewed by the great Dr. Stewart himself. But first, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, because this episode of How to Wow is about an hour. That means you may have about another hour to listen to a podcast. So I'm going to recommend my friend Louis Theroux's podcast. It's called Grounded. I've listened to three of these over the last few days. I listened to Louis's conversation with Ryland Clark-Neal, which was so unexpectedly fascinating, I can't tell you. His conversation with Helena Bonham Carter, again, is a must-listen. And I first dipped my toe into his podcasting water via his conversation with Sia. You will not regret adding Grounded, Louis Theroux's podcast, to your podcast library from wherever you get yours, which I presume is where you got this one. And here's our latest Hattawa, episode 36. Cue the conversation. Morning, Stuart. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? Great to chat with you again. Oh, I'm very well. Thank you for your book again. I know you've been on the radio show, but we're going to go in deep. Are you ready, my friend, now? Born ready, my friend. Born ready. Okay, so The Science of Living, 219 Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routine. All right, gang, how to hours listening to this podcast now. On the way, such gold as does dreaming make me more creative. Do my dreams actually mean anything at all? Is my phone ruining my sex life? Is there a best time to have sex? How do I know how much sleep I need? Why do I fancy certain people? Is being in love good for my health? 219 reasons to rethink your daily routine, or as I've now recategorized your book, 219 superpowers at your fingertips. Uh, thank you to Dr. Stewart. How did you decide on the questions to ask and then hopefully answer? You, know, you were chatting earlier about how um, we write books that we want to read. And I'm just interested in, in everything you know, kind of health, science, you know, how, how our minds work, diet, nutrition. And, you know, you can go out there and you can sort of see there's lots of different books for all these different things. But I'm like, why can't you just write a book about everything? So that was it. And it was about answering everything I could think of, you know, <laughs> right from why can't I remember my dreams in the morning? Should I brush my teeth before or after I've had breakfast? Every time, you know, you've had one of those things of, I wonder why. I just like jot them down and go, that's going in the book. Because this is the book that I would want to, I would want to read. That I would want to, you know, what's the side of against everything? Because I love listening to those kind of the radio shows and the podcasts and the things that go. Oh, it's really interesting. So I'd pick that up and put it in the book. So it's literally there's 219 because somebody counted them up. There was no reason to it other than that at all. And we all love the fact it's 219 because we love the 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 book has a real sense of it's completely random. Yeah, but it's also very authentic, isn't it? And you know, you can. You, it tells you on the front cover of the book that, well, it's obvious they came up with 219 great questions and that's uh, however many they've decided to answer. When did it occur to you to break the book, the contents of the book up into morning, afternoon, evening and night? Well, the book follows on from, uh, I wrote a very successful book called The Science of Cooking, um, which I think I chatted with you about that yonks and yonks ago. And that was really successful. And it sort of, it followed on with one that we did called The Science of Spice, and then I was chatting with DK. They said, you know, what would you like to do next? And I said, well, I've got this idea. You know, I've always been wondering, could I write a book about everything? And they're like, okay. And so I went away, had a little think about it. And I thought, it'd be the science of, of life. And so I came to them and said, could we do a book about the science of life? And can we break up in terms of how do we, how do we break up those things? And I thought, 
well, I just go through your day, morning to evening. And so started put, putting them down on the list. And some of them don't really fit properly into morning, afternoon, evening and night. So, for example, put the exercise in the evening time, not because that's when necessarily people do it, but it's just that it had to fit in somewhere. So just having a, it's just quite a very nice kind of accessible way to go. Because we all have a morning, afternoon and evening and a night. And we all have these questions that crop up on the day. So it's just something that's very real and down to earth and based in everybody's experience. And let's just go through your qualifications before we go any deeper into the book so people can be reassured that you you do have a a decently (laughs) qualified take on what you're writing and we're talking about. So, yes, um, I'm originally trained as a medical doctor. And my history was that I was originally working as a medical doctor trained in Nottingham University. And I was working, worked in various places, but I was working most recently in Bath in the West Country. And I had various tests, investigations for sort of fatigue. I was uh, basically my hormones were up the spout because I was overworking, not sleeping enough, exercising too hard, not eating eating well, doing long, stupid shifts. And they did these they did these tests and balance and my hormones were out of kilter. And then they did they scanned my brain because of the little gland at the bottom of the brain called the pituitary, which sort of controls a lot of the a lot of it's like the, the master gland in all in all the body for all the different hormones. So they said, right, we'll scan that, just so that's okay. We think it's gonna be fine. We think it's literally just been overdoing it. But they scanned it, pituitary is absolutely fine. But then they find this tumor in the front of my brain that's just been silently growing there. They didn't know anything about it at all. So um shock horror you know i'm working i'm look at look at my scans on the computer screen and oh my gosh i've got this this fuzzy thing in my brain that i didn't know anything about so it was a a brain cancer had surgery for it recovered after that tried to go back to work had seizures suffered with terrible fatigue i needed another operation 18 months after that i couldn't go back to work went into teaching and so i taught 16 to 19 year old girls who were doing a health and social care course, a vocational course, a BTEC. So these were girls who didn't really like school, didn't really like science. And I was tasked with the job of, you have to educate these uh, these boisterous teenage girls about science or the health bits that they don't want to learn. And and Chris, I loved it. It was just fantastic. I sort of, I, I got my waistcoat on, I had a lot of fun. And I said, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your expectations. And you know what? teaching young people and changing people's attitudes to life um and in my my little way i was like you know this subject that they said oh it's boring and at the end of the two years they said you know what yours were the best lessons that i had the whole course but you're like actually that's so much more satisfying than being a doctor when you're a little a little cog in this great big machine and actually you don't see the impact that you have but with but and that just sort of changed my life chris and so i was i was Okay, I want to do this. I want to. I want to educate people and give people the passion for for life and realize that you know science is this thing that helps you understand the beauty, the majesty of life, and this am- amazing human body that we live in. And actually, we can use it. It's very empowering. So that was kind of my passion. And then I went into sort of science writing, and eventually, it kind of culminated in my baby. This this final book called it's not the final book, but <laughs> it, it's the latest book called The Science of Living, which sort of encapsulates all of that stuff. It's funny uh, because it's quite Freudian that because it might be a final book, hopefully not because, you know, you're not going to be around for much longer. You're going to be around for many, many years to come. But because (laughs) it's so good because, you know, certain authors in this particular genre have written books that they can't better. You know, there's some very, Mm. very famous books and this might be one of them. This this could be it. You might just be talking about this this one book for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> let's kick off. Let's go to mornings. When should I drink my first coffee? So it's the first question with the mm. first solution, because they're not just answers. These are solutions that you give us mm. here. Uh, and they're, they're gorgeously illustrated and they're perfectly pitched. Uh, they're, they're not too long. They're not too short. They give you a little bit. They're, they're, they're quite humorous at times. But when answering a question like this, where do you go first? How do you begin to investigate who on the planet might have the best answer to <laughs> when should I drink my first coffee? That's a great question. Um... That's a really good question. And I think what you've got to do is you've got to, these are questions that people have asked in the past. Mm. And the internet's a great thing for that. And so you can pick up little threads of things. And there's also other people that have tried to answer these questions in the past. There's a great chap in uh, in Australia called Dr. Carl. 
He's brilliant. He he has a, rec- a weekly Australian radio show where people phone in and ask him questions. And he's one of these guys who's got a planet-sized brain. He's done a medical degree like me, and then he did like two or three more PhDs just for the fun of it. And he's, he's a hilarious guy. He's got these completely over-the-top uh, sort of multicoloured shirts. He's, he's he's a joke for his shirts, but he's a, he's a lovely chap. And he... He basically tries to answer these questions. So I took some inspiration from him in the sense that he would approach it, sort of break it down from a kind of a a medical way of, you know, how is it that caffeine works? Okay, we look into that and caffeine works, but it blocks this, uh, this sleepiness hormone in the brain called adenosine. And that is the, it's not melatonin, which you often hear of is the sleep hormone. It's this, it's this chemical called adenosine in the brain that makes us feel sleepy. And it gets, it gets greater and greater throughout the day. So if you have, if you have coffee first thing in the morning, then adenosine is very low. So it's actually having, you know, science shows us that it's actually having a very limited effect. So as I think I've described to you before, it's like we wake up in the morning, we're ready to go. We've also got this this stress hormone called cortisol, which are natural sort of shots in the arm in the morning to get us going. We've got that going on. We've got super low sleepiness hormone levels, super low adenosine. So when you have your coffee on top of that, it's basically not doing anything at all. You're throwing a couple of matches onto raging barbecue. So that and that's the kind of the science point. And then you sort of dig a bit deeper into, you know, people's the research about coffee. And the interesting thing is that you find that coffee doesn't actually give you a boost. Dun, dun, dun. You look online, Chris, you do you do the research and you and everybody will tell you caffeine boosts your metabolism, it makes you more more alert, it boosts your mood, it gives you a temporary lift. And this is true. But the problem is that most people that they test this on are people who are already drinking coffee. Mm. And what happens if you take the coffee away, then actually people are just as happy, they're just as energized, they've got just as much va-ba-boom. <laughs> but what, what happens is when you've had your coffee, the next day you're having withdrawals and so you feel <laughs> crap. And so mid-morning, you're, you're desperate for that coffee. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Your mood picks up, you mm. feel better, you've got more energy, you're more productive. And it's simply, it's a bit like smoking. You're going from one, one craving to the next. And when that dawns on you, so actually now I mostly drink decaf coffee. I have cups of tea. I've got a cup of tea next to me now. Uh, but I'll mostly have decaf because actually you're just hurting yourself. But the coffee thing, you know, Mo Farah swears by coffee. I swear mm. by coffee. You know, when we're running marathons, you get your gels. You know, the ones with caffeine in. Is it is it all marketing? Have we fallen yeah. for the, is it is it cloak and dagger all the way? No, but if you're going to use it for, say, sports, mm. then the best thing to do is not have any caffeine for like the two weeks before, so that you're in that 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 state of I'm I'm a non-caffeine user. Then when you have the coffee, uh... it gives you that. It gives you the full lift. So the the lift is real. But if you drink it regularly, then actually you're just bringing yourself up to a up to a normal level. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Yeah. So basically. Um... If you drink on a regular basis, you, you normalize it and your body normalizes it. And therefore, you need it to sustain yeah. a normal level as opposed to get Absolutely. the original kick out of it. Uh, let's talk about um, let's talk about water then. Uh, so what about drinking water? Yes. So water, uh, obviously, we need it. And we've got this. You go around, you see these posters sometimes that say uh, you must drink eight, nine glasses of water a day. Or sometimes it's two liters. Some people say six glasses, seven glasses. And we need water, obviously, because our body's completely was using it the whole time. So every time we breathe, we lose a bit of water vapor. Our, our, our kidneys always need to produce a certain amount of urine just to keep the body clean. And we need about two liters, give or take, for an adult every day into our body. And but the thing is, is that a significant proportion of that will come from our food. And this whole idea of two litres came from an old US nutrition guideline. But essentially, it said for a sedentary adult, you need about two litres of water intake every day. And then the next sentence says, but a significant proportion of this will come from from food, from a balanced diet. But, But it stopped. But people just took just drunk in that first fact without going on to the next next bit of it and seized upon by the the bottled water industry who want to sell us something that comes out of our tap 
um, to tell you must be drinking more. And so we've now got it's a marker of good health is to be walking around with a water bottle, especially one of those ones that's got markings in it to show whether you've, you've drunk your two litres in a day. In reality, we need to just listen to our body. We need to listen to, we've got this highly evolved, this highly attuned thirst scent in our brain. It's kept us alive for millions of years. It keeps every animal alive. And, and we can trust to we can trust to listen to our body and when we're thirsty we can go and get a drink thing is that often we only drink at meal times which is just sort of this social cultural thing and, and so if we just need to learn to to listen to our body and when and and drink when we're thirsty yeah and also if we drink at the right times we don't get as hungry so they do recommend you know you should be drinking sort of half time between meal times and that will just make uh, for well you you your insides will be happier with what's going on outside you know in the first place and also uh, you do talk about is breakfast the most important meal of the day you know we know breakfast like a king lunch mm. like a prince uh, supper like a pauper off you go if you look at the studies if you're a regular breakfast eater and you choose not to have breakfast, that's you don't put on weight. You actually probably lose a bit of weight in the long term. So having breakfast is not a way to um, to lose weight. Having breakfast is not a way to gain weight particularly. I say what it is about is about understanding your body clock. And we've all got our own body clock. And actually for some of us, it's sort of geared to different times. Some of us are morning lights, some of us are night hours. And for some of us, you wake up in the morning and actually you're not hungry. So there's no benefit of, of sitting down and forcing yourself to eat because, you know, it's not necessarily in our nature. You know, historically in Roman times, it would have been quite normal mm. just to have one meal in a day. You know, we're not necessarily evolved for three meals a day. And I think a lot of it is the sort of the snack industry has, has told us that actually we need to eat every two or three hours in the day because otherwise we get something <laughs> bad's going to happen. So breakfast isn't the most important meal of the day. If you are, uh, if you're doing physical labor, then the same way as if, if before you're doing any exercise, you must have good nutrition in the morning. So so breakfast is important if you're doing any kind of serious work or any kind of exercise if you're a kid you must have breakfast because because you need it for thinking you need it for learning if you're unwell uh, or you're elderly then it's a good idea to make sure that you have breakfast as a routine but for you and me chris who can who spend our day mm. sort of mostly sitting down and indoors if we don't feel like breakfast there's nothing to be gained by us going i've got to have my big bowl of cereal in the morning you know just just Listen to your bodies. Yeah, uh, eat when you're hungry and uh, drink when you're thirsty. You know, that's that's a, mm. a general rule of thumb. And in terms of satiating your hunger, most of our hunger comes from uh, from a hormone called ghrelin. This greedy hormone called ghrelin, which comes from the walls of our of our stomach. And basically, whenever our stomach is empty, it starts sending out these ghrelin uh, signals to our brain, telling us to eat. So basically our stomach is never satisfied. Whenever it's empty, it's saying, give me more food. So a good way, if you drink, then you're actually filling your stomach up. So you're taking away those 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 ghrelin signals that tell you to eat more, which is exactly as you said earlier. So a drink first in the morning can actually fill your stomach up and you can you can assess whether you're actually hungry or not, whether your body needs those nutrients or not. And the same throughout the day. So yes, drinking in the morning is a great idea and it is to kind of keep drinking to your thirst throughout the day. Yeah, the ghrelin gremlins. And this thing about snacking is the... It's a lot to do with the circadian rhythm, isn't it? Because every 90 minutes or so, we have we have a natural lull. And if you fancy a cup of tea, or you, you know, you're a tea belly, as my mum used to say, that's when you'll go and make a cup of tea. If you, you had a fag, that's when you'll see people sneaking out of work, uh, going around the back, uh, lighting up. Um, and that that's that's it's a natural break in in our uh, biochemistry. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good opportunity to to get up and walk around because, you know, sitting is sort of a bit of a scourge of modern living. We spend far too yeah. long sitting down. And in the book, I go on to say, is sitting down the new smoking? And it's not the new smoking because it pales into insignificance in terms of the damage that smoking does to you. But in terms of every hour or so, every 90 minutes, if you get up and walk around, that's a good opportunity. And I've heard Dr. Chatterjee, he came up with this idea recently that when you go back a cup of tea, have a dumbbell next to your, next to your kettle. And so just do do some do some arm curls, one arm and then the other arm whilst the kettle boils. So I think that's a great idea. Um, in terms of how your, your brain works, about 90 minutes is about all you're going to get out of your brain power anyway. So it is good 
to take that break. And I explain about, you know, in the book about the different brain networks that we have and that we need to let those different brain networks work. So for example, we have a, a wandering brain network, also called the default mode network, which is when we're relaxed and our mind is wandering. And, there, and actually, when we're, when we're not doing anything, we're just thinking, staring out the window, our brain is actually really active, probably at its most active. You're, you're whirling around all your thoughts. You're actually able to empathize. You're able to think about things, take stock. And that is when your, your creativity can flow. And that is your, your brain sort of replenishing its reserves. So you cannot just concentrate and work the whole time working. So when you're concentrating, you're using your, your concentrating network, more technically called the central executive network, which is the thing at the front your frontal lobes, your thinking concentrating regions, that gets exhausted. After about 60 minutes, it's it's done. So you need to give it a break. You need to let the, the wandering network, the default mode network, take over and just relax a bit. So yeah, 60, 90 minutes is a great time to sort of let those brain cells refuel just by taking a break. I also read recently that if you sit down for 45 minutes that will decrease your metabolism by 90 percent and if you just literally get up and walk mm. around for 15 or 20 seconds it fires it back up again so that's extraordinarily important um let's go to brushing our teeth next so there are many myths to do with brushing our teeth again i have to say all stemming from the the amazing marketing and advertising industries yes absolutely so toothpaste originally until very recently did absolutely nothing and it was now, best part of 100 years ago, uh, toothpaste manufacturers in the US, there was a brand called Pepsodent, and they wanted a, a, a smart way to sell more toothpaste. And it was previously being sold as a cosmetic product. And so they said, right, uh, they got top advertising guy to come along and say, right, we want you to to make this a must purchase product. And so he thought, right, I need some kind of health reason behind how I can sell this to people. So this is an essential, you've got to buy this for your own health and well-being. And so he he traipsed through the uh the dental journals and he came across this, he came across this thing called plaque. And so he said, Oh, plaque, brushing will get rid of the plaque, which it does. And he, he and he formed this link. He said that if you get rid of the plaque, you get rid of tooth decay which is completely wrong. He just, he invented that. And so he said, if you brush with toothpaste, it gets rid of plaque, which prevents tooth decay. And he, he started this huge sort of lobbying campaign for, for, for dentists and basically managed to convince the world that you need to brush you need to brush with, with toothpaste to get rid of plaque so to stop tooth decay. And actually, getting rid of plaque doesn't stop tooth decay at all. The thing that, stop, this thing that causes tooth decay is eating refined carbohydrates, so sugars, flours. Because before we had sugars, flours, bread, breads and pastries, we just didn't really get dental tooth decay you go to sort of hunter-gatherer communities and actually they don't have anything like the tooth decay that we have but he marketed it and he 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 said it's got a special ingredient in it called iridium which is actually just a frothing agent and it's called sodium laurel sulfate it's just a detergent that froths but he claimed this was this magical thing that was that would prevent tooth decay and, he, and he, he basically sold a lie and we all bought into it and we we're all brushing our teeth thinking that it actually helped where really it, it it did get rid of the plaque but it probably wasn't making our teeth last much longer and it was only later on when they discovered that fluoride does wonders for our teeth in terms of helping to strengthen the enamel the outer coating of the teeth uh, that, that when fluoride would add it to toothpaste, it wasn't until they added fluoride, I think it was in the in the 40s, that actually toothpaste started to doing anything at all. Up until that point, it was just a, a frothy thing that, that gave you a nice, you know, minty taste in your mouth. So, so toothpaste now are effective, but probably not for the reasons that you think. The main thing is that the, the brushing does help. There is some some evidence that brushing helps reduces gum inflammation and gum infections and brushing itself without the toothpaste will get rid of the plaque which which are good things to do but they but those in themselves won't necessarily help tooth decay the fluoride that's in the toothpaste helps the tooth decay which is why i think it's very dangerous when people try to sell toothpaste without the fluoride in because the fluoride is the most important thing 
in your toothpaste. So we've been sold a line. Now we have toothpaste that actually do something. And some of the sensitive uh, teeth toothpastes also have extra ingredients of which there is evidence based that they kind of they block up the the little pores in the tooth that cause that cause that horrible nerve pain that you get when you have something cold or something very hot. You're so good. You're so good. Um... Right, let's just, we still haven't made it out of the doorstep, everyone. Um, let's talk about showering then in the morning. So so uh, let's talk about showering over taking a bath. What time mm. is the best to take one, both, or as I say, either? Um, mm. And cold showers as nature's natural espresso. Um, over to you. Yes, uh, a cold shower in the morning is very invigorating um, and it has been equated to um, a sort of a caffeine hit in the morning. So yeah, a cold shower is very invigorating. Um, and when they've done studies, they found that you can get a, a an invigorating boost if you have a warm shower, then have a cold 30 second blast at the end. And it's that cold temperature that sets off the sort of the, the fight or flight, the survival instincts in us. And that can give us that extra boost in the morning. So if we're feeling really sluggish and maybe we've not slept well the night before, then that can be a good natural you know, kickstart to get your day going. Warm showers tend to have, hot showers tend to have the opposite effect, more of a soporific, a more relaxing effect, because coldness is generally perceived by a body as a threat, whereas warmth is, is like we're safe now. We're in a warm, safe place because, you know, we're much more likely to, to freeze to death than we are, especially in the UK, much more likely to freeze to death <laughs> than we are evolutionary, than we are to, to scorch to death. So, yeah, so that's our natural inclination. So warm is relaxing. So in the evening time, it would be a good time to have a warm shower or a warm bath. There's not a lot between showering and bathing, although I would say that we tend to wash ourselves too much. Across all of our body and our hair, there's this uh, microscopically thin sheen of of an oil, a natural waterproof oil called sebum. And that stuff, that's our waterproof coating. That's the body's natural moisturizer. Incidentally, moisturizing cream doesn't add any moisture to our skin. It just replaces, same as conditioner, this sebum layer that we've washed off. And if we're washing too much, we're actually washing all this lovely natural oil off our hair and off our body. And so we're at risk of getting ourselves sort of very dry skin, and especially at the moment with all the alcohol hand rubs that we're putting on, giving ourselves dermatitis and getting a very sore, cracked skin. So generally speaking, we probably wash and shower too much. So dermatologists say actually you should probably have a full body wash or shower every other day to give your body time to replenish its natural oils. And if you have a bath, then don't have it too hot. And they say, don't stay in it for longer than 15 minutes if you want to look after your skin and hair. You're, this is so good. This is so good. Um, forget uh, hotels listening. The Gideon Bible, yeah. Have one of those in every room if you like. But you've got to have <laughs> a copy of this book in every room. The Science of Living, 290 Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routine. We're talking to Dr. Stuart Farriman. Right now, uh, we could talk about waking up and, and snooze buttons and when, when you shouldn't press your snooze button. But if you do, how long you should press it for and sometimes why you're more tired uh, when you have a lie-in. But... Um, the book is out there, The Science of Living, and we've got to get past. We've got to get out the door. We've got to get on with our day. <laughs> so before we do move on to mornings, afternoons, and then night times, yeah. could you pray see the perfect morning routine for us? <laughs> yes. Uh, don't don't set the alarm. Try and uh, wake up when you would wake up naturally. If you want to have the alarm, set it as a fail safe. Don't ever hit the snooze button. Get out of bed when you wake up. Um, have uh, Don't do anything in the first anything serious in the first hour or so don't look at your news don't on your on your smartphone don't look at, at any kind of work related stuff don't touch social media put something nice on in the morning because your emotional centers are very vulnerable at that time so you want you want to be kind to yourself in the morning the first hour uh, take your time have a shower or, or whatever it is that you want to do in the morning have a nice routine and, you know, because you can't think as well, it's a good idea to maybe have thought about your breakfast the night before yeah. if you're going to have something different, which is why I think that's why we eat the same thing every morning, because we haven't got the brain cells to compute it in the morning. So we just go, oh, oh, loosely in again, or whatever it is that we have. Yeah. And also exercise is good. Get out into daylight. We want to get kickstart our body clock. So get the curtains open. And if you want to wake up naturally, get the curtains open. Um, before you need to wake up so that the sunlight gets in as soon as possible. Nice little hack for you to get up nice and sparky in the morning is set the central heating to come on about half an hour before you wake up to sort of 
simulate the, the natural warming of the earth as if the sun is coming up because that is telling your body clock now is the time for getting up. You're teaching your body that this is the natural waking time. Get some exercise, get out fresh air first thing in the morning. Be happy. Um, if you're going to commute, uh, don't commute more than your ideal commute is about 15 minutes and ideally do it by by physical exercise. So there we are. We've got, we got out of the door yet. So yes, that's that's a good starter for 10. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're getting closer. Well done, yeah. pal. Uh, very impressive. Isn't he fascinating? What a mind, what a book. You're listening to Dr. Stuart Farman on the How to Wild podcast. He is author of The Science of Living, 219 Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routine. And we'll be right back. But first, may I tell you that today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals and whole whole food sourced ingredients including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity and digestion. I've been on it for about four weeks now and I feel genuinely different. My skin is smoother. I love a nap in the day. I don't always get to have one but now if I don't somehow it feels okay. You know, it could be a placebo effect, but I don't think it is. Can it really be that much of a coincidence? Well, whichever way I look at it, I think Athletic Greens is working for me. A deep seaweed green like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six. Okay, ten tops. To prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous. And so here's how you can get yours. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts, athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow. Okay, and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal Athletic Greens have given how to wow listeners. A free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go. Once again, Athletic greens.com slash don't forget how to wow okay so morning to afternoon uh what are the tempos of afternoon thinking within the book would you say i think you had matthew walker on before didn't you he's a top bloke talking to you all about sleep he's very he's, good he's, he's, he's if you want anything about sleep he's your man to go to yep. because sleep is the foundation of all good health and he will tell you that but as he will probably say that we're built for two sleeps a day not one um because we've evolved to sleep when it's hottest in the day in the savannah, so we would naturally be sleeping early afternoon. So I think the first thing to get in there is that your your brain power peaks late morning. For most people, for 75% of people, you're most productive in the first two or three hours of your working day, um, unless you're a night owl, because everybody's body clock is different. But the first part of, of your afternoon, um, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a lull. Use lunchtime as an opportunity to get good nutrition into you, but use it as an opportunity to, to have something good. And if you want to minimise the post-lunch slump, is to don't have a big lunch, especially big, heavy carbohydrate-based lunches. They trigger a series of hormone releases from your gut that send you to sleep. And in that first part of the afternoon, say between one and three, you're not going to be doing your best work. And so that's a good time to make phone calls, um, chat with people, do things that don't, all the really boring things that need no brain power at all. If you're doing sort of a, a paper-based job, then, well, nothing paper-based anymore, but, but you know, desk-based job, then do your filing, do your emails, whatever it is, do, do, do all the stuff that doesn't need any brain power. Save the important stuff earlier on in the day, the afternoon. And then as the afternoon goes on, you will find that early to mid-afternoon, you hit your fitness peak. So although it is good to exercise first thing in the morning, the best time when your body is most ready to exercise is about eight to nine hours after waking up, which interestingly is why more world records are broken in the evening time, because that's when all these young people, the, you know, your teenagers and your early 20s, that's their natural exercise peak time when, when you're firing at your best. Well, let's, before, we, before we move on, um, let's talk about the opposite or, or actually what's um, indicative of what you've just been saying. So I am a, I am a napper. I, lo I love to nap. Um, I, I'm getting better at it. I, I nap better if I 
If I lie down on the rug in the living room, bizarrely, I can be away with the fairies so quickly. And, you know, at night time, I tried sleeping on on the floor throughout the night a couple of weeks ago because of this sleep month of ours in January. Um, and it was okay. But I'll tell you what it did. It made me fall back in love with my bed a couple of days later, for sure. But what is the best time to have a nap? How long for should we be napping? Um, and any tips to get us off and to, to not uh, allow ourselves to overnap? Yes. So uh, napping, ideally, I think about 15 to 20 minutes is about right. Because if you uh, if you can get five or 10 minutes, then that is good. Just to sort of any kind of any kind of rest, any kind of napping is good. Although if you have it for too long, uh, 40, 50 minutes or an hour, maybe, then you'll risk waking up from the deepest stages of sleep, what's called slow wave sleep. And that's the part of sleep when, when you're snoring, when you're not really, when your body is at its most relaxed and your brain has pretty much turned off. It's, it's like you're in a coma pretty much. Um, so if you wake up from that very deep sleep, um, so let's say you've been napping for an hour, you wake up and you feel really groggy and you kind of think, why on earth did I even bother having a nap in the first place? I just feel terrible. And you're suffering from a thing called sleep inertia. So it's basically your brain is still half asleep. And when you look on, on scans of people's brain waves when they're in that groggy state, they're still actually, the brain keeps slipping back into sleep. So this is why first in the morning when you first wake up and you might be suffering from sleep inertia, you're very vulnerable. You can't make decisions very well. Your reaction times are terrible. So so if you nap for, say, an hour, you put yourself at risk of waking up in this groggy sleep inertia state. If you sleep for longer, so you can sleep for maybe 90 minutes, then you will have been through a whole complete sleep cycle. You'll have gone into the this deep slate, deep state of sleep, and then back out again into the lighter sleep, and then you'll wake up, and you'll wake up feeling more perky. But so either have it short or have it long. All right. And what about decision making? So if we're thinking about making decisions between three and five in the afternoon, um, that's sounding, that's feeling quite good to me. I seem to get a second lease of life. And also I get a bit more clarity in the afternoon because I'm do, I'm doing my job in the mornings and decisions, the most important ones tend to be more about your personal life as opposed to your professional life. Or, Often we try and convince ourselves it's the other way around, but it's not really. Um, so what about what about the best window time for making decisions? Well, that's it's really interesting because you have this post-lunch slump and then it does pick up again in the evening time. So early afternoon, and actually you might find, and this can be quite frustrating, is that you're hitting your 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 full throttle at sort of five or six o'clock and that's sort of tea time. So yeah, absolutely. The best time for decision-making, generally speaking, most studies say it's in the morning. So probably about... 10, 11 o'clock time. That's the time when we're most able to assimilate lots of information and to make good decisions. So generally speaking, between the hours of 10 and 12, 11 or 12 o'clock in the morning, late morning, is generally seen as being the mo- is the best time for making decisions. But everybody's body clock is different. So people who are morning larks, uh, they, that will be very true for them, people who, who naturally wake up early, whereas for night owls, it will be reversed. So they will they will come into their, into their four in the evening time. And interestingly, your most creative time is the opposite end of, end of the spectrum. So if you're a morning lark, then actually you're most creative in the evening time. And that's because those, uh, your brain is more relaxed. You're, you know, you're uh, you're able to activate your your wandering network a little bit more, and so you can be more creative. So yes, evening time for creativity for about seventy five percent of the population. Morning time for all those hard uh, decisions to make. So I mean, it may be that the few in the evening time that's when you have those best sort of light bulb moments. Maybe it's funny, isn't it? Because we talk about hyperglycemia in running, you know, especially if you get anaerobic. So it's not really about the distance you cover, but it's about the time you're out. And it's roughly two hours for everybody. You begin to sort of um, uh, require sugar to burn. And that's why you need to take on more jelly babies, fruit gums, uh, lions, midget gems, gels, whatever it may be, bananas. But I heard a similar theory for our decision juice. I heard a theory that we only have so much decision juice in us. And once we've used it up, a really wise thing to do that day is try and sense one that is and just don't make any more decisions until you've had a sleep again. That's a good idea. I've not heard that, but that sounds very sensible because, yeah, there is a capacity. There is a capacity. And in the same way that our different brain networks get exhausted. So there's also a third one that I call the watching network or technical term is the salience network. And that is the parts of our brain that fire when we're concentrating, when we're just watching something very intently. 
Um, so imagine if you if you're watching, say you're 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 at a, a traffic lights and you're intently watching when the wind's going to from red to green. That is when your salience network, your watching network, is active, and that in itself can only maintain attention for about two or three minutes then it just gets exhausted and with the central executive network that gets exhausted after about 50 minutes to an hour if you chop and change between between tasks so you do some tasks maybe like cooking where you've got to concentrate for a bit you've got to pay attention for a bit you can you can relax for a little bit you can probably maintain that job for about one and a half two maybe three hours without taking a break but essentially all those all those brain networks have a limited capacity and they will be depleted you need to you need to restore all those those drained reserves in your brain which is you know your brain's your most precious organ it's an incredible thing and and we just kind of take it for granted we just think i can just work for as long as i want to work and you can't you got you got to love it yeah, and also use up more calories than any other organ in your body, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, about a fifth of all calories that you eat burnt on this thing. It's very hot in there, believe it or not. <laughs> it's very there's a very kind of evolved, a very sort of high tech system of which it tries to cool the brain down because it's burning all those calories. It's in this enclosed sort of metal shell, and your brain's body's got to work really hard to keep it cool. It's got a very good kind of blood cooling system. Okay, so let's go random now. Uh, let's let's try and do let's try and cover ten questions in twenty minutes. So ten in twenty. Here we go. Let's stick with the brain for now. Is it true we only use ten percent of our brains? Because we've all heard that a thousand times. No, not at all. Load of nonsense. Load of nonsense. We use all of our brain all of the time. So yeah, that's that's very easy. You look at brain scans and you'll see that there is no part of the brain that is not being used. The brain has no, has an incredible ability to compensate. So you can take out ten percent, like a huge amount of the brain and it will still function perfectly well you know with my brain tumor it's an absolutely horrendous size of, of chunk of brain they've taken and i look and i go why am i not a vegetable the brain is an incredible uh, incredibly able to to rewire and to compensate for for damage but no we do not use 10 percent of our brain we use and i think this this sort of pop culture thing seems to burst out this idea of you know we can we've got this untapped potential and we do have huge untapped potential, but the idea that it's we only use 10% of our brain is just a little hogwash. So no, nothing in it at all. All right, another one from our 10 in 20. Is it cheaper? Is it really cheaper, Doc, to shop online? We think it is, and you do surveys, and most people say they think it's cheaper to shop online, but actually it's probably not. And <laughs> we're subject to, to unseen forces in the online world. Historically, Buying things was always done in a marketplace and you would always or in a shop and you would barter, you would you would negotiate the price of things. And then sort of fixed pricing came in as a way to sort of make it fairer for all. And it seems that with the online world, we've kind of gone back to this bartering system again where prices fluctuate. But this time we're not really in control anymore. And so there's unseen algorithms that are that that are changing the price of things. And very clever they're kind of picking up on our on our cues and of you know what our what our shopping habits are and on all these cookies and things that you know are online behaviors so and, and i give an example in the book that there's there's now vending machines that um that alter their 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 price according to what temperature it is so it's not it's not necessarily cheaper shopping online, but it can be. You've got to be savvy. So if you use uh, sort of apps and websites that track the price of things, then you can make the most of when their algorithms are deciding to put it put it down low. But generally speaking, it's not necessarily cheaper to shop online. But you just got to be savvy about it. And also, it's easier. So it might be cheaper per item, but we buy more items, and therefore, you know, pro rata, it's not. On aggregate, they're very clever with that. People who who saw this also purchased, and we, we'll bundle it together for you for for exactly the same price as if you bought it all separately. Take take we'll take five pounds off for you, and yeah, absolutely. So it, it isn't necessarily cheaper. And actually, I don't. There is there's a good argument that um, having something physically makes you makes you value it more. You know, when you when you go around, and especially with having cash, for example, we've got rid of cash, but it gives us the the sense and the value of of money, of things. Yeah, and also it hurts. It hurts when you part with cash because you can see, you can feel it. You're letting something go. All right, so, so we're going to put in things in the same basket. Um, is my phone ruining my sex life? I don't have one. Uh, is there a best time to have sex? And um, what's most attractive in a long-term partner? So phones, yes. So when we have a phone, it activates, it's basically a, a door on the outside world. It's like having a doorbell in your pocket or having, you know, having sex by the front door. You know, that's not, it's not conducive. It's, it, we need to be relaxed in order to, to have sex. 
Um, and so we need that that you know the most relaxed part of our brain, the the default mode network to be to be swimming nicely, so that we could we can we can engage with our emotions, we can engage with the other person. And so when this this little doorbell, this little piece of um, piece of technology that we have at our bedside, when that when that buzzes, then actually it fires this watching network, that that salience network. It's that oh my gosh, you know. A tiger has just come across across my vision. I need to pay. I need to. I need to pay attention. That completely breaks the magic. So yes. Yeah, so phones and even just the presence of a phone will make you less empathetic and less caring. They've done studies on this where you have people talking in a room and you have a phone, even if it's turned off and there's a phone on the table, then you are less attentive to the other person because of that part of your brain that's thinking mm, that could just ring any subconsciously that thing could just ring any time and i might have to avert my attention to that so yes phones could well be harming your sex life so best idea get rid of them like you've done chris put them in another room yes all things being equal what's the best time to have sex the best time to have sex okay well testosterone is sort of like the the, the girl of, of sex drive in both men and women and testosterone is highest in the morning, in both men and women. For women, their level of testosterone is much lower than men. So in the morning, actually, we've got a natural drive to have a bit of loving first thing in the morning, which I always think is a bit of uh, nature's sense of humor, because in the morning, our breath stinks. So we may be feeling amorous, but but we have terrible breaths. Um, so, but yes, first thing in the morning is sort of a natural time. We actually often have sex just out of sort of, whenever it's convenient. So the, the typical time for people to have sex is about 11, 11.30 at night, which is just because we just happen to be lying in bed together. It's like, oh, okay. Which is kind of a real shame because that's not when, <laughs> that's not when our body is telling us. And there's an ebb and a flow. So with, yeah. so with women, um, their hormones are, are strong drivers of the sex drive. In the first half of the menstrual cycle, so before uh, the egg is released, seven or so days after they've just had the period, that is that is when your your the the sex drive is at its highest. That's when you're most fertile because if you have sex, then the sperm can actually hang around. It lingers around for two or three days in time for the egg when it when it when it's released. Can, it can it can then meet the egg when it's on its journey down through the fallopian tubes. So first half of the cycle for women, for men, it seems this strange with men. There's this sort of this seven day cycle. So seven days after you've last had sex. The, then you actually have another rise in, in your sex drive. So it's like a seven-day cycle for blokes. For women, it's sort of like the first half of the month. There's also seasonal cycles. So it seems that spring is where is the time when sperm are most active. They're most sort of powerful. So springtime seems to be the better time than the other times of the year. And then also throughout the life. So for, for, for us chaps, we sort of peak quite early, sort of in our in our late teens, early 20s, because for women, their sex drive sort of grows, grows more slowly. So by the time they're sort of there in their 30s, it's sort of reaching its peak. So there's sort of a nice little sweet spot, a crossover in our kind of 30s, 40s time when men and women are about even. Uh, right. So what's the most important thing to find attractive in our partners? Yes, uh, in our partners, I think a good way of something as is if you can if you can laugh at life together, then you can probably do long time love together. You need to cherish intimacy, and having sex once a week uh, compared to once a month is is gives gives a similar boost in 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 life satisfaction to getting a forty thousand pound salary pay increase. So we need to we need to prioritize intimacy and and sex and those things in our relationships. But we've also got to appreciate that those things aren't enough to sustain as long term. These there's several stages of love, and the first stage of love is generally seen to being lust, which is this this very physical physical attraction that we have is driven by these powerful hormones like testosterone, and it binds us together. That won't last forever, as we all know this, and it's got to be taken over by by attachment, um, which is this sort of this more longer term um, sort of binding thing between us. And that's driven by a whole different set of set of hormones, like there's oxytocin, which is called the cuddle hormone. So, and when you look at studies of what couples go together that go together best, you hear this thing about how you know opposites attract. But generally speaking, that 
couples that stay together for longest have similar uh, opinions, similar politics, similar similar sort of backgrounds. So birds of a feather really do flock together. So yes, it's a myth that um, you need to get on, you need to talk. Talking, there's a lot of science show that talking frequently, being able to share your uh, share your worries, your concerns in a non-judgmental way. That's a key feature of long-term long-term partners. Yeah, so going long-term, you've got you've got it. It's all in the round. Do our dreams actually mean anything at all? Uh, that's very interesting. So dreams, when we're dreaming, when we're in this, uh, we have different stages of sleep. So we've got the the dreaming stage of sleep, which is called rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, and that's when our brain is basically it's like we're awake. When you look at brain scans, your brain is doing essentially the same thing as if you're awake and your eyes are darting around. I don't know if you've ever done it, but if somebody's sleeping and they're dreaming, you can, if you're very careful, you can lift up their eyelids and you can see their eyes are, are darting left and right. And so that is when your brain is. Uh, putting together all the things that have happened in your day. It's just like this random sort of hodgepodge of things. I liken it to, you know, you've got those detective boards where they get all the different parts of the clue and they put the the strings together and they're trying to find out who the, who they, uh, who the murderer is. Yeah, they're called murder wars. It's called the murder war. Your brain is basically doing that. It's getting all yeah. the cards of your day, throwing them on a table and trying to see where there are similarities and where there are links. And so just lots of random, and it's trying to build, it's about strengthening relationships, about making emotional sense of what's gone on. So so a feeling that you had in this situation maybe is, is tied in with something that happened three years ago and so you have this this weird situation where you're you're reliving something that happened in the day then somebody from three years ago comes in just purely because your brain's forming those connections it's how your brain makes sense of things it's really important for learning it's important for emotional healing for making sense of our lives of the world and so if you don't dream then you're very you know your emotions will suffer and often when you see people who are chronic alcoholics they basically they don't dream properly at night time and so they're just very very emotionally damaged people and a lot of that is because of the lack of of, of dreaming so dreaming in themselves are are really important in terms of our our emotional health in terms of making sense of the world it's important for our learning do our dreams themselves mean anything that's a very good question and that there's been lots of different theories on it some people say that it's uh, it's just something that happens. It's just this random thing that our brains do when we when we when we go to bed at night. There's no, no significance at all. It's just a brain freewheeling uh, because it's got nothing else to do. And other people say that no, it's a way of, as I've just said, of making sense of the world, and that we can we can use them to to sort of inform how we understand life and how we how we uh, how we see the world. Obviously, there's the whole theories of uh, is it prophesying the future, and there's a chap who did a study where he got people to uh write in uh, all their it was for it was from a magazine or a newspaper they got them to write in all their dreams and he tallied them up over 15 years as to whether they whether any people's dreams were actually prophecies of something that happened and there was absolutely no no link at all to them <laughs> zero. so so zero link so dreams yes very very important and you can't if you if you want to get better at remembering your dreams because they're very easy to forget and that's because when you wet, first wake up your your the memory part of your brain is called the hippocampus and that has actually been sleeping when you've been asleep so when you wake up that hippocampus is still not quite awake and so it can't remember it, it isn't very good at forming long-term memories so if you wake up you'll be able to describe in that instant what was going on in your dream but if you don't like concentrate on it or write it down, it will just sort of vanish or just vaporize within a few seconds because that hippocampus, that sort of that that memory hub is still waking up. So if you want to remember your dreams better and you want to really get into them, then write them down straight away or tell somebody about them straight away. But most of the time, they don't really make much sense. And they're sort of these really powerful sort of psychedelic experiences to you. And they often have lots of meaning to you, but you tell them somebody else, like you tell your wife, you say, I had this really, you know, this really deep dream. And and you sound like, you know, oh, Donald Trump was there and all this. And, <laughs> you know, and it's really, but it means nothing to other people. It's just, it's it's your brain's way of making sense of your world. Yeah. And you, like you say, I've never heard that before, but I've heard of well, why people can't remember them, but never uh, spoken about as articulately as you just did then. So you only ever catch the end of a dream anyhow, if you're lucky. 
Mm, that's right. So based on what we're talking about relationships before and uh, what's the most important thing to find attractive in someone or the most important thing that ends up being um, attractive as far as someone's concerned is this one. Why do we get so nervous around someone we fancy? And why does that link up with why you might want to watch a horror film on your first date? I love this. We often, you know, when we're, especially when we're a teenager, or you, you have those, those very embarrassing moments of you get very anxious around another person and then all of a sudden you start bubbling nonsense and you say the most embarrassing thing imaginable. And that is because when we see another person, we, we've got the, our fight or flight system. This survival response kicks in. So our heartbeat goes up, uh, our blood pressure rises, our, our pupils dilate. Uh, which incidentally is is one reason why uh, women used to put drops into their eyes to make their, their eyes dilate, to make themselves look more attractive in Roman times. Uh, our hairs stand on end. We're basically, we're fired up. And when we're fired up like that, we're in this very sort of, uh, the same response as if we're under threat. And we don't, we don't think about things. We just react. We're in this very reactive situation. And so we can't think clearly. And so we get uptight, we get anxious. And so interestingly, and that's just a natural part, it's to do with the excitement, it's to do with this whole lust drive thing. It's the way in which we're brought together, this exciting experience of two people coming together. But interestingly, if you go for go to a go to a horror movie or a scary movie, any kind of exciting thing um, at the cinema, then actually that is uh, triggering these similar sort of fight or flight responses, this surge of adrenaline in us. And we interpret that. Uh, as being one and the same kind of kind of loved up excitement. So if you go go to go to a, go to a scary movie, then those the thrill of the movie will actually amplify the thrill of knowing of, of meeting the other person. So you'll have a much more intense emotional experience to go on go on a first date. And is that why a lot of horror movies have a sexy narrative sort of running in parallel with them? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but that would make perfect sense. That would make absolute perfect sense, yes. But they do, don't they? That's, ex that's exactly what happens. I've only just realised that. As I said to you before, Chris, our emotions are very uh, highly attuned. Or they, they basically emerge out of our bodily sensations. So emotions, basically, uh, we think emotions sort of come in from us, from, from like some, some unimaginable place. Like, like the, we think emotions come in like the weather, but actually our emotions mostly come from ourselves, from, our, from bodily sensations. And there's this little known uh, sensation, this little known part of a sense, if you like, a sixth sense called interoception, which is the way our brain uh, surveys everything that's going on in our body. And it uses those bodily sensations, our heart rate, our blood pressure, our muscle tension, the state of our internal organs to, to inform what emotions that we're feeling. So when you're when you go to the cinema, for, some, for example, and you're looking at a, at a scary movie, you get the fight or flight, the anxious uptight hormones and your, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, you breathe faster and your brain sort of takes those cues and says, what's going on and it makes an, it makes an assessment of what's going on around you if say for example you're walking down the street and you bump into somebody and you have that sensation you might interpret that as being anger and you'll feel frustration and anger towards that person that was just a decision that was made in your brain based on the feelings that you have and your understanding of the world that's going on around you so if you go to the cinema for example and you're having this scary sensation then you look around and, and you're with this person you absolutely love then actually you, you may well interpret that as being an intense attraction for this person. So watching a scary movie is a way of sort of gaming your, your bodily interoception to have greater attraction towards the other person. So it's a good bet if you want, if you want the other person to really dig you, to go find a really scary movie and tell them lots of sweet nothings. And they will interpret that fear as being intense attraction to you. That is amazing. That's why they're so flipping popular in horror movies. Because I, I never got them before, but now at the age of 54, finally. Oh my goodness me. Right, before we finish, is there such a thing as a midlife crisis? And in the book you say, and this is fascinating, even chimpanzees, our closest primate relatives, and other apes seem to experience a period of midlife, not so much crises, but sadness. Tell us about the link between those two things and the truth behind either or both. It's mostly midlife crisis is just sort of a modern day creation. And actually it, it rooted back from uh, a theory that um, musical geniuses had a, in their middle of their life, 
they suffered a creative slump. So, so the theory was that people like Mozart, he went through a creative slump in his midlife. And this was the sort of the, the foundation of this idea of the midlife crisis. But and, and sort of in more recent times, it's entered kind of American pop culture of the the 40-something chap who goes and spends all his money on, on fast cars and runs off with his secretary. And you were to say that that was a a 40-something man, then you'd say that person's having a midlife crisis. If you were to say it was a 20-something woman, then you'd just say that woman was being irresponsible. So the midlife crisis, there is no evidence of people being more irresponsible in their middle years than at any other time of their life. We make just lousy decisions at any age. So the midlife crisis, there's no evidence for that. But we do know that the middle years in the, the 30s, 40s, 50s are generally a time that we're least happy with life. Our life satisfaction is at its lowest. People have argued why this is. Maybe it's because we've got the, the dual stresses of kids growing up and We've got elderly parents and we're sort of caught in the middle because um, life satisfaction is is highest when you're really young and it sort of goes down throughout life. Um, so it's kind of quite high in childhood and it sort of slumps in the middle of life. And actually, we get happier in our later life. We sort of reach our peak happiness in sort of our 60s and our 70s, probably because we've, you know, we've seen a lot of life and we actually become at peace with ourselves. I've heard it said that in our 20s, we spend our time worrying about what other people think about us. In our 30s, we spend our time blaming our parents for how we are. In our 40s, we realise that nobody really cared about what we're talking about us and it wasn't really all our parents' faults. And we actually sort of begin to sort of become at peace with ourselves. So, But there is this similar sort of, I mean, similar sort of happiness sort of flow in, in other animals, in primates, in the middle of their life. They have this sort of this, this slight sort of slump. So I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's something biological, almost outly cultural in there as well. So, so yes, we do. But the actual midlife crisis of being irresponsible in the middle of, of, of your life is a myth. We're just irresponsible at any time of our life. Do you think maybe it's the realization of our mortality, and you know, it's the sort of it's the it's the manifestation or the palpable sense, the fact that we're moving to to the second half of our lives. I mean, I'm 54, and you know, based on the average age of a, a UK bloke now, I'm not far off entering the winter of my life, which sounds really dramatic. I'm actually really happy with with how I feel and where I am, probably more now than ever in life. But chronologically, I am on the precipice of the winter. You know, I think that you only really truly learn to love life when you realise that, you know, that our life is 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 temporary. You know, I'm much more happy with life now that I've know that I've got a brain tumour. And as 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 horrible as that sounds, but you've got to face up to the reality that one out of one of us is gonna die. All <laughs> of us are. And, and we you know, we've got to come to terms with it and we've got to make the most of our most of our life. And I think that that the yeah, absolutely. The, the source of, of of happiness and contentment is understanding that that life is this temporary, beautiful thing that we have. So yeah, and so I think getting old, you know, I'm looking forward to getting old. To be honest, I want I want the grey hairs and I want the arthritis and all that sort of stuff because you know I've my life is very much threatened. Um, you know, if I make fifty, then I'm then I'm then I'm beating the odds to be honest. And so, you know. Uh, I think life gets better the older you get. You get make more sense of it. You learn to, to love others more. I love my wife now more than ever. I'm happy with with everything. I've you know amazing opportunities. I've the most wonderful messages I've had from people who've who've read this book and have have had their lives sort of you know changed. Well, that's that's a beautiful underlining of why you are perfectly qualified and justified to write this book 290 reasons to rethink your daily routine by dr stewart who you've been listening to now dr stuart Farmond. just before you go dr stewart before we part company if we can't call the person to find out about coffee if we can't call the person to find out about fluoride you know is it all within us anyway are the signs of how to make the right decisions there for us anyway every morning when we wake up is it merely a, a case of listening to our body, getting the right sleep, looking at nature, using it as a mirror, realizing that, you know, uh, I just said it, you know, I've committed the crime myself, looking at nature. We are nature for heaven's sake, aren't we? We're part of it. I think that our intuitions can deceive us. And so I think that we need to, we need to look at things soberly and we need to sort of be quite objective as we can about things because, yeah, we do. We can, we can trick ourselves or all sorts of things and we can think our body's telling us one thing and actually it's it's something else so we need to i think we need to take a step back and we need to take a sober look at our lives um and if possible we we sort of it'd be good to speak to other people to get external advice and and look at things yourself and look at things with you know unclouded eyes 
you know, don't, you know, the internet is a fantastic thing, but don't, for heaven's sake, go on there and just look at things that you want to read because that's, that's the thing that we all do. We put ourselves in these little kind of these echo chambers, if you yeah. like. Um, so just have an open mind um, and yes, have an open mind, be humble. And and how have you, what, what is your health regime now? Because obviously it's optimum, you know, it's, it's higher on your radar than it is on most people's. What can, what can you tell us that we can take away? I just, you know, I stay fit. I do, I do. So I've got an, in, I've got a bike that I've got linked up onto a smart trainer inside, and so I'm on that once or twice a day, keeping myself fit. Um, get outside, get some daylight. People, I tell you what, I couldn't be, you know, other people. People, you know, people talk about sort of the best diet to have and, and the Mediterranean diet being the best diet, but it's about the whole lifestyle. It's about having a, you know, a community of people who love you, having family around us, being able to people who socialize. It's a, you know, we are built for other people. And I think one of the most healing things you can do is to, is to be there for other people. You know, generosity, I think is the most, is the most healing thing in my opinion. So I think it's all about community. It's about being with other people. How fascinating is that guy? His book is unbelievable. You've been listening to Dr. Stuart Furham and author of The Science of Living. 219 reasons to rethink your daily routine. I consider them to be 219 superpowers available to all of us now. Order your copy from wherever you get your books. And if you've enjoyed the last hour, subscribe and rate and review the How to Wow podcast. Are we done? Yes? Okay. Toodle pip. Ta-da.